Uh, gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would be with us and help us to encounter you this morning, that we would continue to be changed by you. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, there's a Presbyterian pastor who was known by uh, the name Lloyd Ogilvie. He was a chaplain of the U.S. Senate uh, in the 90s. He had a beautiful kind of deep baritone. Uh, I think a, a different pastor named uh, John Ortberg once remarked, uh, Lloyd Ogilvie sounds like I think God will sound on a really good day. Uh, but, but that was his voice. Um, in his book, Enjoying God, Dr. Ogilvie tells this story. My formative years ingrained the quid pro quo into my attitude toward myself. Do and you'll receive. Perform and you'll be loved. When I got good grades, achieved, and was a success, I felt accepted by my parents. My dad taught me to fish and hunt and work hard to provide for us, but I rarely heard him say, Lloyd, I love you. He tried to show it in his actions, and sometimes I caught a twinkle of affirmation in his eyes, but I still felt empty. When I became a Christian, I immediately became so involved in discipleship activities that I did not experience the profound healing of the grace I talked about theoretically. I'll never forget, as long as I live, the first time I really experienced healing grace. I was a postgraduate student at the University of Edinburgh. Because of financial pressures, I had to accordion my studies into a shorter-than-usual period. Carrying a double load of classes was very demanding, and I was exhausted by the constant feeling of never quite measuring up. No matter how good my grades were, I thought they could be better. Sadly, I was not living the very truths that I was studying. Although I, I could have told you that the Greek word for grace and joy were charis and kara. I was not experiencing them. My beloved professor, Dr. James Stewart, that slightly built dynamo of a saint, saw into my soul with x-ray vision. One day in the corridor of the new college, he stopped me. He looked me in the eye intensely. Then he smiled warmly, took my coat lapels in his hands, drew me down a few inches from his face, and said, Dear boy, you are loved now. You are loved now. I wonder how many of us go through life searching for simply that affirmation and acknowledgement. You are loved now. Not because of what you do, not because of how hard you work, not because of what you know, not because of how you look, not because that you seem to have things put together, not because you're aspiring towards something or trying to become something, but you are loved now. Notice, not you will be loved, you might be loved, you could be loved, maybe in the future, one day, if but you are loved now. Just as you are, just because you are, just because God is God and just because you are His. Love like this isn't conditional or transactional, even if so much of the rest of life is. 
We get so used to jumping through hoops, so used to performing, so used to that quid pro quo that we forget that that's not how love works. It's how our world works. It's how everything else works. But it's not how God works. And it's definitely not how God's love works. Because God loves you now. As we again try and make sure that we have some room for Jesus in our lives, even and especially on this Christmas Day, we recognize that one of the ways that we make room for Jesus is with hearts of love, hearts that experience God's love. And so if you would, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 23. John, chapter 2, verse 23, as we prepare our hearts with more love. Today we're going to be talking about a a Nick, a Saint Nick, not Saint Nicholas, but Saint Nicodemus. Uh, This takes place well after the birth of Jesus. In fact, it's probably about 30 years, so it seems odd on a Christmas morning, but maybe we can find a connection here somewhere. So let us read now. John chapter 2. Actually, I'm going to start a couple verses before you guys start in verse 1. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, verse 1 says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. 
Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Amen. As our passage begins, we find people starting to warm to Jesus, but we also find Jesus being a little cautious around them, particularly because he knows them, and he knows that they can be fickle. He knows that he still has a lot of ministry to do and lessons to teach and lives to change before he heads to a cross. One evening, a Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to him, and it's a rather strange encounter. And we just aren't given enough information to know what Nicodemus is doing, let alone his intent. One option is he's coming at night because he wants a a little privacy as he tries to get to know Jesus better. Another is that he's coming at night because he fears being criticized or he's embarrassed as he wants to try and stay anonymous. A third option is that he's coming at night because of something more sinister. He has some plot or plan in mind as he questions Jesus. But we don't know. Even the way he talks is unclear. Is he being respectful or a little too respectful? Is he complimenting Jesus or challenging him? That said, he is coming to Jesus, and that's always the right direction to be going, making room for Jesus, as it were. And Jesus engages with Nicodemus, inviting him to come closer, teaching him that Christians are born of water and the Spirit. They believe in the Son. They're saved by God because of love. But in the process of all this, Jesus is also challenging Nicodemus, helping him to understand God's love more and better, such that he will be transformed, such that he will be born again, such that he will be made new. And at the end, Jesus invites Nicodemus into this new and deeper kind of life. And just because we don't normally see what happens in an encounter like this, in a normal sermon, because we're just looking at one passage, uh, what's helpful about Nicodemus is we actually do see the full arc. Later on in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus speaks out on Jesus' behalf before the Jewish leaders. And then... Much more revealing, after Jesus is crucified and everyone else has fled, after Jesus is gone and the disciples have panicked and scattered, we find someone named Joseph of Arimathea asking to bury the body, and he's not alone. He's brought someone to help. Where everyone else doesn't want to be associated with Jesus anymore, you have Joseph of Arimathea, And of all people, Nicodemus, who brings 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to prepare the body for burial. In other words, in the Gospel of John, by the end, Nicodemus is no longer hiding in the dark. Instead, he's been changed. He's living out God's love in new ways. He seems to have been born again. But as we try and briefly process all of this on this Christmas morning, my hope is that we will simply see the connection between love and life. Because as Nicodemus comes to Jesus in order to get to know him better, Jesus seems to be encouraging him to come deeper, 
pointing him towards God's love, pointing him towards a changed way of life, pointing him toward a new kingdom. But all of this starts with God's love. Because, of course, Nicodemus strikes me as one of those people who is a little too worried with what everyone else thinks. Worried about how he's performing. Worried he won't be good enough. Believing he has to change first, be better first, and then he might be loved. And Jesus seems to be saying it actually goes the other way. Or to put it another way, Nicodemus seems steeped in the idea that if I'm good enough and faithful enough and worthy enough, then I will be accepted and chosen and loved. And I'm sure that none of you know anything about that. But therefore, what Jesus is trying to do in Nicodemus is help him understand the same thing that Dr. Stewart was trying to convey to Ogilvy. You are loved now, for God loves the world. God wants to save the world. God wants people to know him now. God wants us to be born again new. Because God loves us. It's funny, in this season where we celebrate the gift of Jesus and the birth of Jesus and the incarnation of Jesus, maybe in some ways the deeper point is not that we can love, but that we are loved. Maybe the deeper point is not that Jesus came, but that we can follow. Maybe the deeper point is not that God can be born one of us, but that we can be reborn more like him. I'll say that again. Maybe the deeper point is not that God can be born one of us, but that we can be reborn more like him. I wonder if this is why Nicodemus was having so much trouble believing and understanding Jesus. Because it's too easy to believe that we can't be changed. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. I mean, sure, sure, we can make slight modifications, little tweaks. I mean, that's what next week's for, January 1st. We got two days to, you know, completely change our lives, except we all know that by January well, later on January 1st, um, normally that's all gone. I, then I, I go back to just being the same person I, well, because I, I can't change. I, I can make little modifications, little tweaks, but overall we are who we are. We can't become someone else, except that's not the message of Jesus, nor the story of Christmas. It's not just that Jesus came, it's that we can be changed. It's interesting. As we understand that we are loved, it makes us want to live up to that love. Think about a, a time when you felt really loved, when someone loved you, accepted you, chose you, cared for you just because... And notice, it made you want to be the person that they loved. It made you want to become more worthy of their love. It made you want to live up to their picture 
of you. And maybe part of the story of the Bible and the story of the gospel is that God, who knows all, the God Almighty, loves you. Which, if you could, if you could feel that, if you could know that, it would make you want to live up to that love. Not so that you can keep it, not so that you could earn it, but because that's how we respond to love. Which then also makes us want to share it, to spread it to others, to the world. Because Jesus is bringing in a new kingdom of this love. Because God wants to not only love the world, but to save the world. And maybe sometimes we overthink that word a little bit, to save the world. Maybe that's not always something spiritual or ethereal. Maybe it just means God sees some of the trouble we're in and wants better for us. Wants us to know that he's with us. Wants us to know that he loves us. Maybe in some ways that's how we're saved. In so many ways, Jesus is God's love made manifest. It's love that sent Jesus to us. It's love that redeems us. It's love that transforms us. It's love that makes us new. It's love that saves us. Because God seems to be saying all throughout the scriptures, you are loved now. It's then our challenge to become a people who live that out into the world. Let's pray. Lord God, somehow even on a Christmas morning, we can forget how much you love us. We, we can forget that your love isn't contingent on what we do or what we say, or how we act, or who we are. But your love is simply who you are. And you have chosen to love us. You love the world. And so you sent your son. And so we thank you. We pray that we would live up to your love. We pray that we might recognize that we can be changed. That as much as you have been born today, you can be reborn in us. We can be reborn in you. Lord, we thank you for who you are, and we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.